Royal Dutch Shell, the titanic Anglo-Dutch oil company, matters to investors. It's the largest listed group on the London Stock Exchange, and of the six so-called super-major global oil companies, second in size only to ExxonMobil of the US. Last year, it paid out £6.5 billion in dividends, more than any other company in the FTSE. Incredibly, Shell has not cut its payout in seven decades, earning it an enormous loyal following. Thousands of shareholders rely on this regular stream of income directly, and many more investors who hold track or equity funds are indirectly exposed to the company. Shell, like all oil producers, has also been clobbered by the fall in the oil price. Between summer 2014 and January of this year, as the price of a barrel of Brent crude fell from $115 to $40 a barrel, Shell's share price halved. I'm Alex Newman, a reporter at the Investors Chronicle, and in this podcast, I'll be asking how Shell can cope with the damage done by the oil price fall and whether investors should continue to view the shares as a long-term core holding as the need to avert climate change ushers in the end of the oil age. The merger of Royal Dutch Petroleum and the London-headquartered Shell Transport and Training Company in 1907 was somewhat defensive. Both companies knew they were targets or prey of Standard Oil, the giant founded by John D. Rockefeller, which was threatening to extend its near monopoly in the US right across the globe. At the time of the merger, the assets of Royal Dutch and Shell were concentrated in the East Indies and Baku, Azerbaijan, at that time part of Imperial Russia. More than a century later, and the company's shape and size has changed quite a bit. It's got some very attractive long-term assets, and it's a business that really plans in a time period of decades. That's the voice of the investment manager of OneTrust, which predates the original merger of Royal Dutch Shell by almost two decades. I'm Simon Gurgle, Chief Investment Officer for UK Equities at Allianz Global Investors, and I'm the manager of the Merchants Trust. So how does Shell meet these aims? It's been, if you like, a core holding. It's a high-yielding company that generates considerable amount of cash over the economic cycle and it's got a record of consistent dividend uh, progression over time. We tend to be value investors and somewhat contrarian so as the oil price was rising in 2014 we were reducing holdings uh, a little bit in the summer but then when the oil price came down and the share price started to track back we built the holding back up again and it's remained roughly the same um, since then. It's, it's quite a large position, in fact it's the largest position within the trust. About 7-8% to 8% of the Merchants Trust. The company is enormous Last year, it produced oil and gas equivalent to around 3 million barrels a day, and as of December, had just under 12 billion barrels of reserves. But what are its assets? Yeah, Shell has got an excellent position in gas, uh, whether that's Qatar liquid natural gas or, or pearl gas to liquid. It's got some strong LNG liquid natural gas positions in Nigeria and Australia. It's got good positions in, in deep water oil places like Brazil, following the BG deal and Gulf of Mexico and, and elsewhere. And it's got some very strong downstream assets, pipelines, distribution assets, uh, which generates considerable cash. Those assets were recently given an enormous boost. Last year, Shell made a successful £36 billion bid for BG, once the gas exploration arm of British Gas, before it was spun out of the company in 1997. The deal, which received final approval in January, was a wise move, according to IC Deputy's company's editor, Mark Robinson, who has covered both Shell and BG for several years. We were broadly positive on the deal when it was first announced, and for pretty much the same strategic reasons that Shell have set out, mainly that they want to become the preeminent supplier of uh, natural gas in world energy markets, and uh, the BG group deal went a long way to uh, putting them down that road as well, particularly because of the uh, Curtis site in uh, Australia, which uh, actually uh, started uh, exporting around about the same time that uh, 
the takeover deal received its final uh, regulatory assent and you know that's a that's a huge lng project and it's selling into uh, southeast asia and and the chinese markets as well so while margins that they have been under a little bit of pressure you know there's real long-term visibility as far as revenues go certainly from a strategic point of view i think it made sense for shareholders in both groups i mean there's always some value destruction in, in these types of moves as well and, and no doubt uh, there'll be synergies as well so some productive assets may be lost along the way but uh, over the long run i think it's uh, it made perfect sense but hasn't a thinner oil price placed a big strain on cash Shell shareholder Simon Gurgle again. In terms of the Shell portfolio, it gives them optionality now where they can reduce capital expenditure on more marginal projects and focus investment on on really high quality businesses so they can cut overall combined capital expenditure uh, and improve the cash flow of the business. I think the timing was interesting because they've whether they bought it exactly at the bottom of the oil price cycle, we don't yet know, but they certainly bought it at a time when the oil price is depressed. And a time when BG had made a considerable investment in the previous years, BG's cash flow was improving as it was coming towards the end of a very significant investment profile. So the timing looks very good in terms of buying a good quality assets at, at a depressed point of the economic cycle. And so putting all that together, I think it makes Shell a stronger business. It gives it better growth prospects and it gives it a very strong position in LNG and deep water oil. So in one important area, Shell is clearly building for the future. Elsewhere, the recent pattern of investment has not been quite so successful. Last October, the company pulled the plug on the Carmen Creek Tar Sands project in Canada, citing uncertainties. This resulted in a $2 billion impairment charge and followed a decision to abandon drilling off the Alaskan coast. Other projects to have been deferred or cancelled include a joint venture to develop Abu Dhabi's gas reservoirs and the development of a petrochemical plant in Qatar. That might be good for short-term capital preservation, but it's not a pattern that can continue indefinitely. Mark Robinson again. The main worry when we were covering it at um, the latest four years, and it applies to BP and a few of the other oil majors as well, the fact that uh, the replenishment rates, the reserves are extremely low at the moment. And you can understand the reason for that because they've pulled a lot of um, uh, CapEx and uh, and they're, they're running a very trim model at the moment and trying to preserve as much uh, cash flow as possible to underpin those dividends but at some point they're going to have to step up and try and address that very issue. It's notoriously difficult to value oil and gas stocks but one of the ways they do it in some cases is just a simple sum of the parts valuation where they look at reserves, multiply it by the average oil price over the last 12 months and you know look at the net debt situation and come to a, per share, you know, a simple per share measure like that. So obviously, you know, the oil price determines current and future valuations as well. So there you have it. Lower investment means a lower valuation. But Shell has an ace in the hole, its dividend, which currently provides a yield of more than 7%. That's very big. And in the eyes of many investors, too big, given Shell is having to borrow to meet its dividend commitments. If low oil prices persist, doesn't that increase the risk of a dividend cut? Um, I think it's guaranteed, or they've guaranteed the dividend for the remainder of uh, this year through each quarter. But obviously, if if we were going, if we we're going to move into uh, 2017 with oil at forty dollars a barrel, they'd almost certainly have to pay back the, the dividend. I mean, they'd be loath to do it. I think it would be the first time in or decades for for them. It's a big attraction for the share, and I think overall, there there may actually be the largest 
payer of dividends in, in the UK and have been for a, a few years. It'd be virtually impossible to sustain that with uh, oil prices where they are. So does the market think this is sustainable? Simon Gurgle of the Merchants Trust once again. We believe their dividend is sustainable. And there are several reasons for that. I mean, firstly, we don't think the oil price is sustainable down in the 30 to $40 level. You are seeing a huge reduction in capital investment by the industry. You're seeing something like three or $400 billion of capital expenditure has been cut now by the industry. And that means you will see less growth in supply. Um, at the same time, existing oil fields do deplete fairly rapidly. So without new supply coming in, or with less new supply coming in, the market will get tighter. And demand is rising as the low oil price has prompted more, more usage of oil. So we, we don't see oil price staying that depressed for very long. There's actually not much surplus oil supply over demand every year anyway at the moment. It's quite the market's tighter than you might think. Secondly, Shell has a very strong balance sheet. So they can ride through a temporary disruption in the oil price and, and also they're making disposals. But I think the third thing is actually if you look at the cost of the dividend compared to the cost of the capital expenditure, it's, it's a fraction. I mean, I think at the peak it was about a third of the cost of the capital expenditure was the cost of the dividend. They are reducing the capital expenditure. They are making the business more efficient and, and the cost of doing business is coming down quite dramatically. And that's making the dividend more sustainable. So yes, for a year or two, they may have to increase the debt or, or rely on disposals. But in the medium term, we see the business becoming more efficient and more cash generative, and we see the oil price recovering. So we do think that the dividend should be sustainable. Funding the dividend through asset sales? Aren't we in a buyer's market? It's going to be difficult. I mean, we, we've we been predicting for some time, not just with oil and gas markets, is that we, we were going to see um, a, a rise in the number of assets up for sale. But um, as you say, you know, buyers are obviously going to be uh, thin on the ground until um, we get some clarity on the, uh, as far as future oil prices are concerned. The timing and execution of the BG deal might give investors hope that Shell can repeat the trick with sales, but it's going to be tricky. Shell, like its peers, faces another huge challenge in the coming years. That will be navigating environmental policy aimed at curbing fossil fuel emissions and the planet's reliance on carbon-intensive sources of energy. The oil age will have to end this century. But does this affect the medium to long term investment case for Shell's shares? In terms of oil, obviously, the the main threat is particularly in growth economies, the promotion of electric vehicles or more efficient vehicles so that the new fleet that's being added doesn't increase oil demand to the extent that uh, the industry may be assuming. But it doesn't have to be all negative for the industry. You know, one of the reasons a lot of the European majors support a carbon price, for example, is because they see it displacing coal with gas. So, you know, it could work both ways. They could take into account both options. That's James Leeson, research director of Carbon Tracker, a think tank which makes the links between climate change, energy and the financial system. One of the group's core concepts is the idea of a carbon budget. Basically, like any budget, you've got a finite amount you can use within a certain period. So this is framed in terms of carbon dioxide emissions over the next couple of decades. Obviously, the more you use in the next few years, the less you'll have later on um, there are various ways you could allocate that between the different fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas. So we've calculated a, a level of coal, oil and gas you could emit within the next 20 years to deliver a certain climate change outcome. And anything beyond that, we term unburnable reserves because they wouldn't be able to be burnt, unmitigated uh, and fit within the carbon budget. But I think what we've focused on more recently is this sort of uh, stranded assets concept in a financial sense. So for us, that's looking at where are there assets that aren't making a return for shareholders. So that might be, you know, already we're seeing where Shell wrote off their assets in the Arctic and took a hit in their their accounts, where you've got utilities with 
new gas plants that they've had to mothball because there isn't the demand for that capacity. So, you know, where investments have been made and you're not seeing the return, you know, we've already seen that two thirds of the world's coal mines are not turning a profit at the moment. You know, that's the existing production in the real world at today's prices. So for us, those are already, you know, starting to become stranded assets because they're not creating value for shareholders. Shell has publicly disputed the concept of stranded assets. Two years ago, the company penned an open letter in which it argued that moves to less carbon-intensive sources of energy would take longer than expected and, reassured that demand for oil will grow, stated its belief that none of its proven reserves will become stranded. James Leeton and the carbon tracker weren't convinced by Shell's argument. And yeah, in a sense, we didn't really understand why it went through all the sort of rather fluffy areas like their internal carbon price and good housekeeping and you know, what they were doing to to become more efficient, because that wasn't really where we were coming from. It was more about their fundamental business. To us, Shell should be able to explain in one or two sides, you know, why their CapEx plans going forward make sense, what their strategy is, why it's resilient in a number of scenarios. So that's what we're still looking for, in a sense, is is that sort of reasonable explanation rather than a justification of business as usual and relying on a lot of carbon capture and storage coming through. But Shell's business plans are based on the most likely scenarios of the International Energy Agency. Does this not future-proof the company's strategy? I mean, I think it's very important to distinguish between scenarios and forecasts. So the IEA, I'm sure, would be the first to point out that their long-term scenarios are just that. They are potential sort of ways the future might evolve. They're not a forecast for the next 25 years. They would tell you how difficult it is to forecast five years, let alone 30, 40, 50 years. So I think that's where they become slightly misrepresented in the market, where companies are saying, well, there's this central policy scenario from the IA that says we're still going to have two thirds, three quarters of energy from fossil fuels, all the markets are going to grow. There's no problem. But that scenario, the central policy scenario is based on no further policy or no further developments in technology. So to us, that doesn't seem a very prudent way to plan your business, assuming that absolutely nothing changes in the next 20 years, for example. No further constraints on emissions, no reduction in costs for alternatives. That to us means that there's only a downside from that scenario. So that's what we're asking the companies to tell us more about is you can justify your business as usual approach using that scenario, but what's the downside? Where are the risks here? Even Simon Gurgle, who has staked more than 7% of the merchant's trust in Shell, concedes that the company is unlikely to be able to burn all of its reserves. Should this weigh on the minds of investors? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think there almost certainly will be assets that or reserves they have today, which some of which won't be realisable in an economic way because of those issues. But I think it would be wrong to to think this is a short-term issue or even a medium-term issue. The If you look at the energy demands of the world, they are huge and growing um, as as many developing countries want to have greater electricity production. And a big chunk of electricity production today is, is still from coal. And coal is, as you, as you know, the dirtiest fuel in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. That needs to be replaced. And gas will be a big part of, of the replacement of much of that coal power. And even if you believe in electric vehicles, the electricity has to be generated somehow. And so fossil fuels will be a big part of that for, for, for decades to come. But you're right, on a, on a 30, 40 year period, time view. There are risks to some of these businesses. And that's why we, we think it's really critical that they start to focus on the growth per share of the business. And that may mean that they shrink over time. Uh, we don't have a problem if Shell and BP and other oil majors shrink the size of the business over time as, as the market shrinks, provided they look at running the business, improving the business on a per share basis. And, and the valuations of the companies are certainly not 
concerned about and don't don't have anything in there for the amount of cash this business could be producing in in 20 years time i mean quite frankly if they if they produce good cash flows for the next decade you'll more than make up the the share prices so a good reason for that is shell is in a position stronger than most including the slightly more indebted bp to ride out the current oil price slump that's been the opinion of the Investors Chronicle, which has rated the shares a buy for several years. Yeah, Deputy Companies Editor Mark Robinson again. We, we've all, already, always said it was a tremendous uh, income stock, and I think if you'd have held it for long enough anyway, you'd have um, more than made up your uh, capital. You know, It's a long-term option for portfolios, and I'm sure many of our readers have done just that over the years. And I guess if, if you do find, it's like anything, if you consider it's a quality stock and there's near-term weakness, then yeah, top up by all means. Of course, it's not all been entirely positive. Just think back to the numerous project cancellations. Shell, like many of its peers, overextended itself when oil prices were high. The industry knows this. Nick Cooper, the chief executive of London-listed Ophir Energy, admitted as much at the time of his company's full-year results when he said, Despite fluctuating share and commodity prices and some notable discoveries, the international upstream sector as a whole has had a poor record of value creation over the past decade. Simon Gurgle, who acknowledges the underwhelming returns from oil majors, including Shell, in the last decade, remains convinced the company and its dividend will remain a cornerstone of UK investment portfolios. And Shell's great strong balance sheet will be an advantage. So I think you'll see less capacity coming into the industry as the oil price recovers, and that will allow the companies to make better returns. And we have seen this cycle before. It does take a long time, but it can be a very powerful cycle and sustained for a period of time. So we're more optimistic about the future than, than you would be if you look back at the last decade. Of course, Mr Gurgle, like Shell's management team, will come in for investor ire if this proves otherwise. Thank you for listening to this special Investors Chronicle podcast on Royal Dutch Shell. I've been Alex Newman, and until next time, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.